Good evening, welcome to Navarro Live. My name's Aaron Bastani. I hope you had a fabulous weekend. We've had a few days of okay-ish weather here in Britain, for August anyway, certainly better than much the last six weeks. This evening we have some big, big stories, some very tragic, I should say. I'm joined to discuss all of those with Mike Bancole. I said before the show, the B team, but in a good way. Mike, how are you? Yeah, very good. We're in action. The B team are making a debut, so we're looking forward to it. Yeah, the B team, uh, but not 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 in the traditional sense. Bastani Bancale. I like the link up. It's our first time together. Looking forward to it. Uh, coming up on tonight's show, how Tony Blair is still taking money from Saudi Arabia. Some shocking contributions from the public on channel migrant crossings. And Labour have made yet another U-turn. So stay tuned for all of that. First story. On Saturday, six people lost their lives trying to cross the channel from France. The tragedy happened after a boat carrying 65 asylum seekers, including children, began to sink five, five miles off the French coast. Just after 4 a.m., a passing merchant ship spotted the floundering vessel and alerted the French Coast Guard. By the time rescuers arrived, they reported people in the sea, many screaming for help. The passengers were largely from Afghanistan and Sudan. According to French authorities, Saturday's rescue was the seventh time in a single week they'd had to pull people out of the water. In response to the tragedy, Home Secretary Suella Braverman posted this, My thoughts and prayers with those affected by the tragic loss of life in the channel today. This morning, I spoke with our Border Force teams who have been supporting the French authorities in response to this incident. Thoughts and prayers are pretty cheap when you've actually got the power to prevent these kinds of tragedy. For example, by opening safe routes to asylum in the UK. More on that in a second. But first, Mike, your reaction to these deaths and Braverman's response? Yeah, it's just it's just really, really tragic. And I think, as we're going to speak about a bit later, these deaths are avoidable, which is the thing that makes them even more painful. And, you know, immediately we're already seeing these deaths being politicised and, you know, you know, government talking about, you know, tough action to stop these boats crossings. But really, it is about safe routes. And I think it's important that the government realised that they are complicit in these deaths and, and they, again, were easily avoidable. It's a cliche, isn't it? Thoughts and prayers. You often hear it in the United States after um, shootings, school shootings, and dozens of people die, and then a Republican senator or congressperson who supports the right to bear arms and assault rifles on the streets say, thoughts and prayers. It's the, it's the ultimate in performative impotence from politicians, and it's across the Atlantic like so much else. Instead of providing realistic solutions to our broken asylum system, the government's been expending its energy on stunts, and that's what they are, frankly, like the Bibby Stockholm. Last week, the Home Office was forced to remove the 39 people it had placed on the barge after potentially a deadly Legionella bacteria was discovered on board. Dorset Council says it informed Home Office contractors of the test results on Monday, the same day the first occupants of the Bibby Stockholm were moved onto the vessel. But the government didn't act to remove people until Friday, even moving more people onto the barge as late as Thursday. On Sky News, Health Secretary Steve Barclay tried to explain the delay. Why didn't the Home Office wait for the Council's Legionella test results before you started letting people on board? Well, the Home Office did take precautionary measures as soon as we got the results. Uh, it's right that there was tests. Them? So ministers found out on Thursday night, is my understanding, so Home Office ministers were aware on Thursday, they took action as a precautionary measure there. So it's perfectly normal that these tests are done. They were done uh, at the end of the month. 
uh, once ministers were aware that there were some concerns, they took the cautionary measures uh, and the ship will then, the barge will then be made ready and people will come back in. in the but isn't, isn't a normal procedure if you are going to, you know, house people somewhere and you need to do tests, you wait for the results of the tests before you start putting the people in. And if the, if the results of the tests hadn't come back, why were people allowed to go in? Well, this is a, a standard thing the council had done as part. There's no reason to suggest there were concerns. As a precaution, the tests were done. As soon as ministers were notified on Thursday night that there were some concerns with that, they took instant action in terms the, of... The council the says that they told their contractors on the Monday mm. and that the Home Office was informed on the Tuesday. And you're now saying it was Thursday. Who, there's a disparity there, isn't it? Are the council fibbing? Uh, well, uh, it may be the council notify the Home Office. That's a, an issue for, for those in the Home Office uh, to respond to. Obviously, this is a Home Office lead. My understanding from colleagues in the Home Office is it was notified to Home Office ministers on Thursday, uh, and they then took very quick action uh, as a result. But you, but you can see that if, if the results came back on the Monday and you were still housing people Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, others would say that's not quick, quick reactions at all. You were still allowing people to go onto a boat when there was the potential for Legionella. Well, I think this was a precautionary decision. I think there was a, an isolated incident that uh, raised a concern. No one has been injured. Uh, I think health checks, have been, uh, health checks have been carried out with those that were on the barge. Uh, my understanding is the decision taken was a precautionary one. But in terms of what ministers were informed of, my understanding from Home Office colleagues, ministers were notified on Thursday uh, and took a decision as a precautionary measure as a result of it. Now, there are a lot of conflicting accounts of what happened here. Sky News' political correspondent Rob Powell untangled some of the timeline here on Twitter. Government source saying Dorset Council didn't tell the Home Office about test results when they knew on Monday and only told UK HSA on Wednesday. Dorset Council says it wasn't their job to notify the Home Office and says that was responsibility of the contractors who knew on Monday. Dorset Council says a multi-agency forum place and regulatory subgroup meeting took place on Tuesday 8th of August, which was attended by a Home Office official and the Bibby Stockholm contractors, at which the Legionella test result was discussed. So is that it for the Bibby Stockholm? Not at all, as it turns out. Asked when asylum seekers would be back on board, a spokesperson for the Prime Minister said this. We're not putting a timeline on that. We do expect them to be back onto the boat as soon as possible. The Home Office is awaiting the results of further tests. Once these have been completed, or rather those have been completed, obviously the intention is to return people. So on the one hand, we have migrants dying trying to reach British shores. And on the other, we have a government using shabby gimmicks to try and deter them from coming altogether, all while pandering to a fear of asylum seekers that they have stoked amongst voters. So what's the solution? Appearing on Sky News, uh, Labour's Peter Kyle detailed some of their plans. The only way we're going to solve this problem is by getting the fundamentals right. That means tackling the criminal gangs that are causing this problem. We want to set up, use the money that should have been, that has been spent on Rwanda, channel that money into having a new uh, centre in the National Crime Agency that is specifically going after these people smugglers, working much, much more constructively with our neighbours in the European Union and the individual countries through which migrants uh, pass, and also work in-country where the migrants are being driven from because of circumstances, so that we can try and prevent migrants having to flow away from those countries in the first place. So I note that you, you don't say that Labour would immediately close these barges. You're accepting that you may have to use them, depending on what the situation is, when, when, 
or if the Labour... We are going to have a huge mess to clear up, not just in the asylum programme, but on our NHS waiting lists, uh, right across the economy, right across our public services. We are going to have an enormous mess to clear up. We will start on day one by making progress on it, but we will move. Now, if we had been running this system in the first place, we wouldn't have had the barges in the first place. Let's, be that, let's get that right clear from, from the outset. We wouldn't have the waiting lists, the 7.9 million people waiting in the waiting lists, had the Labour proposals been used in the first place and had the trajectory that the last Labour government uh, left the country in been continued with both the economy and public services, we wouldn't have these crises that we see in the economy, in our public services, and also with our asylum system. Each individual caseworker in the Home Office is processing half the number of asylum seeker requests than they were five years ago. There is something broken in this system, but let's be really clear, the people who are currently running the country, they broke it. Now, look, I will be the first to say that if Labour in charge, policies towards refugees would be better. I think even if they said they would do the same things, I think it would be executed better. I don't think it would be any worse. But some of the points made there by Peter Carr were just so deeply disingenuous. Firstly, they're leaving us with this huge mess. We don't know where we can put these asylum seekers. We wouldn't be able to keep, you know, the BB stock home. You know, we don't know for how long it was. Who knows? We're talking about 39 people here, Peter. You could say, look, within the first week, this thing won't be there anymore. You're going get, to get rid of it. Yes or no? Now, to, to his credit, he said that, well, we, it wouldn't have happened in the first place. And then he adds subsequently that if we'd been on the same trajectory that we were after 2010, when Labour was last in charge, the economy, public service would be so much better. That was never on the table because in 2010, in the general election, Labour went to the electorate with austerity. They said that there would be the biggest cut since Thatcher, even bigger than Thatcher, actually, according to Alistair Darling. So this kind of politicking, saying that actually, you know, we could have just carried on like before with 2010. It ignores the global financial crisis and ignores the consensus in this country from both parties about how to respond to it, which was austerity, which Labour is now disowning. But there you go. Labour's plan is more humane than the Tory strategy, for sure, but it's still focused on stopping asylum seekers from coming here. Maybe we need to be more realistic about what Britain's responsibilities actually are, however. On Good Morning Britain, Amnesty International's Steve Valdez-Simmons calmly laid out a different kind of plan. So it's not Britain's fault. The British government isn't letting the migrants down. There's a whole system of governments across the world that are not playing their part. And we're paying the French half a billion pounds on the latest deals. Many would say, for what? Um, well, I agree with the last question, for what? Because we're paying France to intercept boats and to stop people making crossings. And the number of interceptions that France has made over the last few years is many, many, many tens of thousands. But what happens to the people? The people cannot get into the French asylum system, partly because France is already, and has been for many, many years, receiving hugely more people into its asylum system than do we. And that is true right across Europe. So what happens to those people? Their situation remains the same. They're stuck in northern France in miserable conditions, brutality from the French authorities supposedly to deter them. And of course, they will try another journey. Goodness knows how many people are stopped twice, three times, four times before finally making the crossing. So is the answer then to just let more migrants in? Because many 
would argue that that isn't the answer. They don't want their borders open in that way. Um, you said there that, you know, the Schengen zone has provided a problem because people can move freely across those borders. Uh, uh, what is your solution then? If they're stuck in terrible conditions in other countries, what do we do about it? We should allow some people to make safe crossings. You said some. What's, what's the number that um, you there's, think? There's no number. That's, that's a fool's game because that obviously depends upon the situation in the world and the number of people who need to make journeys. So it changes. But for example, we could certainly focus in this country on the fact that some of the people who make these crossings have very strong connection to this country. Some of them even have close family here. Others of them, for crying out loud, have fought alongside British troops in places like Afghanistan. Why are they on these boats? Why are we not saying to other European nations, including France, yes, let's identify people whom we can receive into our asylum system, relieve some of the pressure that you receive, and share in the responsibility that actually are ours. All right. There's so much to talk about from this clip. Before I go over to you, Michael, Ben Habib, a former Brexit Party MEP. How long are these people going to dine out on being MEPs? You know, is it, is it going to be the case that in 2055, you know, several decades after leaving the European Union, somebody's going, I was a former member of the European Parliament. Just, just for the record, Ben Habib is a property guy. He's entitled to have his opinion. He knows a lot about property. I've spoken to him about property and, and regeneration and redevelopment. I don't agree with him very much, but he's very knowledgeable. Precisely what he knows on, on migration policy is questionable. Now, I'm not saying he hasn't got a right to have an opinion. Of course he does. But having him against the Amnesty International guy seems kind of strange. And then it's important to say the six people that died were Afghan. This is a country which we invaded, we bombed, we occupied. Then we left. Now we're imposing sanctions on it. We say the Taliban are terrible, but apparently those fleeing the Taliban, trying to come here, probably they knew people here, probably they could speak some English. They thought it was their, their best destination. Those people die, and it's not a problem. Certainly not our problem. And Mike, what do you make of all this? I, I, for me personally, the fact that it was six Afghans that died really brought home the sort of brazen hypocrisy that's going on here because these are absolutely people fleeing tyranny. The textbook case for asylum and, and refugee status in this country. Absolutely. And I think we have a moral duty and also responsibility to these people. And I think what's really frustrating to me is that just the, the language you use about these people, at the end of the day, these are human beings. And the reason they're taking these risky routes to this country isn't because they want to, isn't because they take a, del a delight from these safe, these kind of these routes. It's because they have to. The government has systematically cut off safe routes to this country. On top of that, it stopped you know, processing asylum claims, you know, and letting them build up. So actually, you know, the government have created this whole crisis when it comes to our asylum at the moment and are now trying to frame themselves, you know, using these barges and this kind of really hostile rhetoric as we're going to help solve all of this by being deeply malicious towards these people. And I just think a lot of our politics, a lot of our politicians lack the compassion required to lead a nation. You know, it's important that, you know, those leading this nation, those leading a, any nation, have compassion to those in need. And I think we have an international duty, you know, as, as a nation like we are, and also in terms of the Refugee Convention. We have a duty to those fleeing persecution. And I think, you know, when I think of Britain, often, you know, people on the left, like myself, like you maybe, Aaron, would, we would criticise Britain and be like, you know, Britain shouldn't have to be like this. 
And Britain doesn't have to be like this. We don't have to be a nation that is hostile towards asylum seekers and towards those in need. And we saw, we saw that with Ukraine, right? We saw that, you know, there was this kind of huge m momentum and, and movement ar around the time to to really, you know, look after those people. And I think the same should be for, for those fleeing the Taliban and, and other, other crises. You know, we shouldn't have this kind of selective, you know, these are people are worthy of, of coming over to this country and those people aren't worthy. You know, it's about helping those in need. It is about being compassionate and having that empathy for those who are suffering. And that includes, you know, safe routes. That includes, you know, processing claims. That includes not housing people. And I, and I think using the word people is important here, not asylum seekers. That involves not housing people in these inhospitable barges where they're, you know, re-traumatized, you know, housing someone who's fleeing persecution in a barge where they're being re-traumatized, how is that a way to treat a human being? How is that a way to run an asylum system? So I think a lot of this is about compassion. And I think the reason I'm frustrated with Labour here is a lot of their criticism of the Conservative Party isn't about, you know, compassion or empathy or treating people like human beings. A lot of it's about competence, and I think that seems to be the dividing line Labour join between themselves and the Conservatives. They are more incompetent than we are. We we have to pick up their mess, all of those sorts of things. Actually, what should be clear for voters is the clear water between Labour and the Conservatives ideologically. You know, we are a party that care about those in need, that care about those who are suffering, that care about the British people. They're not doing that, Labour. And with the asylum, with, with refugees, I see, you see that clearly, where Labour aren't quite having that really clear ideological water between themselves and the, and the Conservative Party. Yeah, such an important point, Mike. You know, the, the whole point about competence is we, we don't want a Labour Party or a, a political alternative which is more competent in inflicting sadistic policies. That's not good for anyone. Uh, before we go to the next story, I just want to show you one more piece of evidence for how shambolic the Tories' asylum strategy is. This is extraordinary. Remember Priti Patel? She was Suella Braverman's predecessor as Home Secretary, the originator of the Rwanda scheme. Patel was also blamed by Home Office insiders for the disgusting conditions at the Manston Asylum Processing Centre in Kent. But now she seems to have turned against the very policy of deterrence through cruelty that she helped pioneer. This headline is from The Express. Furious Pretty Patel blasts Home Office over unacceptable RAF migrant base revelations. Those bases are in Patel's own Essex constituency, and local residents aren't happy about having asylum seekers there. I wonder why. Maybe it's because the Tories have spent more than a decade demonizing them, dehumanizing them. Now, Patel's sensing a risk to her own seat come the next general election. So, what's the message? Do the cruelty sweller, just not where I or my constituents can see it. Unbelievable. Next story. Keir Starmer has U-turned again. Now he's come out against breathable air by ditching Labour's commitment to clean air zones across the country. Earlier this year, Labour published a draft policy handbook. It was set to be debated at the annual National Policy Forum, the MPF, a body made up of MPs, party members, trade unions, where Labour Party policy is debated. Now, that forum took place just days after the Uxbridge by-election, and one policy up for debate was this. Labour supports the principle of clean air zones and recognises the huge damage caused to human health by air pollution and the damage to our climate caused by carbon emissions from polluting vehicles. However, they must be phased in carefully, mindful of the impacts on small businesses and low-paid workers, and should be accompanied with a just transition plan to enable people to switch affordably to low-emission vehicles. The policy didn't survive the debate, with The Telegraph reporting that it was scored out of the policy handbook during the meeting. 
A Labour source has since confirmed that the policy has now been scrapped. Saying this, clean air zones are Conservative government policy. The Tories are the ones who've pushed councils to introduce them. Labour is not in favour of extra burdens on drivers during a Tory-made cost-of-living crisis. Labour's priority is growing the economy to improve living standards and tackle the cost-of-living crisis, not pushing up costs for hard-working families. We are committed to tackling air pollution and we will introduce a Clean Air Act, but we will always look at options for reducing air pollution which do not put the burden on hard-working families. Heaven forbid you drive a car in a single. Uh, this is classical Labour, right? Uh, we'll, we'll come up with a plan, we'll have a new policy framework, we'll even give it a name, lots of bells and whistles, but the actual thing which will get emissions down, we won't do that. So why this policy backtrack? The move follows Labour's narrow loss in the Uxbridge by-election last month. Despite losing the long-time Tory seat by around just 500 votes, Starmer has treated that local election as a plebiscite on low emission zones. That's after residents appear to use the vote to protest Sadiq Khan's Greater London ULES scheme. But Starmer's attitude to low emission zones is likely to clash with his supposed commitment to localism. Earlier this year, Starmer pledged to devolve more powers to local areas, letting them set their own social and economic agendas. But with many mayors, including Sadiq Khan, supporting a clean air agenda, who's going to set policy come the general election? Not all Labour MPs support the move either. Labour MP for York Central, Rachel Maskell, told The Telegraph this. I think Sadiq Khan called it right when he said we wouldn't accept dirty water, so why accept dirty air? I would say it's absolutely essential that we make those interventions that make a difference. A ULES cannot be introduced without proper mitigation. We know that the cost of electric vehicles is prohibitive. Uh, but we've got to address the practical reality, and that's by putting green alternatives forward. We've got to remember it is people living in the most deprived areas that are most affected by poor air quality. This goes to an essential value of labour, and we've got to seriously look at this before coming to office, because the consequences of not doing so will mean people will die or could die unnecessarily. I mean, that is incontrovertible, uh, isn't it? I think labour should follow the science with this, and with that ensure no community experiences detriment. Mike, what's your take on this? You know, it was pretty brazen, I thought, of Labour to say that ULES is a Tory policy. On the, un on the one hand, absolutely true. Boris is the one as London Mayor who wants to bring them in in 2013. It's also true that on a national scale, on a national level, they're imposing ULESs in a number of places, including Portsmouth. But this is the signature policy of Sadiq Khan in his second term. And it feels like they're leaving him to drown a little bit, doesn't it? It does, and it's really, really bizarre. This is all part of, I think, Labour's winners will cost strategy. So it's about, you know, if it upsets voters or if, you know, we think it upsets voters, rather, we're going to, you know, roll back on it and, you know, uh, propose something less, less quote-unquote, radical. But actually, what Labour are failing to realise is that this period in between elections isn't just about winning at all costs and, you know, trying to be more competent in the Conservative Party. It's about building consensus for your ideas you're going to implement when you're in office. It's about showing your ideas and policies, uh, are, you know, driven by these kind of central values that voters can identify. And it's about telling a compelling story off the back of that. And I think you, Les, you know, Labour could tell a really compelling story. Instead of buying into the framing that the Conservatives have put out there of, you know, you, Les, is going to affect, you know, ordinary working families. What they could say instead is that, you know, we had a party on the side of working families. And actually... Not implementing ULEs will affect working families. Why? Because air quality, air pollution is a problem and clean air will help save lives. So the less people that are driving, the less, the less 
you know, air pollution there will be. And we have to frame air pollution as, and, you know, these kind of toxic airs people are breathing in as, you know, a, a real public health issue because we know that, you know, because of air pollution, the NHS is saddled with £20 billion when it comes to all the health issues that are linked to air pollution, like, you know, from diabetes all the way up to something like cancer. So you could really make an argument about how this would have, would help working people. You know, there's also the stats, I think Rachel Maskett touches on this as well, about how, you know, those in the poorest areas who are least likely to drive, they're the most likely to live in areas with you know, high levels of air pollution. So Labour could tell a really compelling story, but instead Labour are trying to, what I would say, quote unquote, win at all costs and play it safe, you know. So, yeah, the Conservatives are attacking them on this issue, just so they're going to, you know, accept the Conservative framing, which is this is affecting working families. And, you know, when they're in office, they're going to influence something that's 10 times better. And I think we really need to wake up here. Final point I'd make is we really need to wake up here. The fact that people think that Labour are going to pivot to all of a sudden when they get into office and be this ultra-progressive party, they did all to win at all costs, guys, you know. You have to play the game, you have to win at all costs. They're not going to pivot. This is Labour, you know. They might pivot slightly, you know, maybe bring back Ulysses at some point, who knows. But we're not going to see this radical shift in, in, in policy approach when it comes to the Labour Party. And if anything, Ulysses is the bare minimum. I mean, when it comes to, you know, the, the science on emissions... When you start talking about those big SUVs that people drive around London, you know, apparently they were responsible for, you know, unbelievable amounts of carbon emissions between 2010 and 2018. I think the second most um, globally. So, ULES is actually the bare minimum, you know, and that's why I think it's funny that we're, we're rolling back on ULES and Labour attacking ULES. It's literally the bare minimum. Yeah, you put that so well, Mike. And it's really true. You know, it's it's really not that radical a policy. You might want to say, look, okay, maybe it shouldn't be so expensive or we should give more, you know, mitigation measures out and, and pay drivers more so they can buy a hybrid and electric vehicle. That's fine. But to actually attack the concept of a lower, low emission zone is, is pretty radical. And for anybody who's in London, you know, I remember cycling past this place so many times when I lived in South London. There's a, there's a child's uh, sort of day nursery care centre on the old Kent Road. And it's all, you know, young kids, mostly kids of colour, black and brown. I'm sure there's some white kids there too. Um, and you've just got, you know, cars zooming by, Mike. And it's exactly what you just said. It's these kids and the families they come from are statistically less likely to drive. And yet they're right next to a very busy road inhaling so much toxic crap. Now, you know, little Timmy and Delilah living in Putney or Barnes, I'm happy for them. But the reality is... Uh, where they're going to school, play school, nursery, very likely to be, you know, covered by trees and hearing birdsong. That's great. I, I'm, I wish all kids could experience that. But like you say, this is very much a class issue and it's a, it's a tragedy, frankly, that Labour are adopting the position they are. Next story. When Mohammed bin Salman became Crown Prince of Saudi Arabia in 2017, there was hope in liberal circles he would be a reformer. Never mind that he ruled over an autocratic theocracy and was the architect of a bloody war in Yemen. MBS was young, well-traveled, and relative to previous Saudi leaders, he practiced a more moderate form of Islam, including allowing women to drive. The loving between MBS and the West was perhaps best epitomized in a New York Times piece by the paper's star international columnist. Thomas Friedman, after interviewing the Saudi prince, declared that at last we were witnessing Saudi Arabia's Arab Spring moment. Yet despite the lovings with Western journalists, MBS's honeymoon wouldn't last. And that was principally because of the brutal nature in which he went after one of their own. 
It was at the Saudi consulate in Istanbul that Jamal Khashoggi met his brutal end. He'd been lured there to discuss paperwork for his upcoming wedding, but he was strangled as soon as he entered the building by a team of Saudi assassins who then dismembered his body. The Saudi dissident who wrote a column for the Washington Post, often criticizing his country's authoritarian leadership, the motive was to silence him. The damning conclusion of the declassified intelligence report is that Saudi Arabia's Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, the country's de facto leader, approved an operation in Istanbul to capture or kill the Saudi journalist. The assessment was based on the Crown Prince's control of decision-making in the kingdom, the direct involvement of a key advisor and members of his protective detail in the operation. The brutal murder of a columnist at the Washington Post wasn't enough to stop the US and UK exporting billions of dollars worth of arms to the Saudi Kingdom. However, it was enough to stop liberals in polite society from associating with the autocrats. There would be no more fawning articles from Mr. Friedman at the NYT. And yet, and yet, there was one man still willing to suck up to MBS and take his cash. You guessed it. The man for whom no one is too corrupt, provided they have just enough money and power, is Sir Anthony Blair, Tony Blair to the rest of us. This weekend, the Sunday Times reported that the Tony Blair Institute continued to advise the Saudi regime even after Jamal Khashoggi's murder, and they take money from them to this day. The article states this. The former Prime Minister's organization has been helping to craft a Vision 2030, the modernization program spearheaded by Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman for the past six years. The multi-million pound partnership began in late 2017, when in a previously undisclosed agreement, Blair's Institute for Global Change seconded staff, that means they went to go work there briefly, to work at the Saudi Ministry of Information and Culture. As part of a year-long contract, his consultants advised Saudi officials on the, quote, policy and objectives of the reform program, according to his spokesman. The Times reports that despite Hashraji's murder, the Tony Blair Institute completed its contract at the Saudi Ministry of Information. They say that the contract was not renewed, but the organization has since entered into separate deals with the Saudi state. The Tony Blair Institute does not publish details of the countries it works in or the amounts of money it receives from individuals and governments. How convenient. In response to the report, a spokesperson for Tony Blair said this. The Tony Blair Institute project in the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, KSA, was and is about the modernization drive in the country. There was, of course, an internal discussion subsequently about working in KSA and with Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. Mr. Blair took the view then and is strongly of the view now, as he has said publicly, that whilst the murder of Mr. Hashroji was a terrible crime that should never have happened, the program of social and economic change underway in Saudi Arabia is of immense uh, and positive importance to the region and the world, that the relationship with Saudi Arabia is of critical strategic importance to the West, and that therefore staying engaged there is justified. No senior staff or board member was opposed to this decision, but naturally there were anxieties expressed as you would expect. This is a man, by the way, who has probably the most influence over a potential Labour government when compared to any think tank on the right. Mike, what do you think of uh, Mr. Blair's justification and that of the Tony Blair Institute more generally? All a mess, really. And I think a lot of this is actually about we need to really interrogate the West's relationships, maybe this country's relationship with Saudi Arabia. You know, 
as a football fan, I've seen lots of reports with like, you know, footballers who are making a move over there and, you know, some of them being scrutinized quite heavily. And I understand that to some extent. But Jordan Henderson shouldn't be scrutinized more than Tony Blair for his relationship with Saudi Arabia. Let's be absolutely clear about this. I think so, you know, what's even more grating for me and what irritating for me about this is that Tony Blair's held up and venerated as this wise man, this you know, super intelligent figure who, you know, deserves to be listened to at all costs, you know. No moral issues with this man. He's completely, you know, just unbelievable. We should listen to him at all costs. So some people in the Labour Party say anyway. We don't interrogate his relationship with Saudi Arabia, for example. So I actually, just, I just, it just really leaves a sour taste in the mouth that, you know, there are other members of society who are held to a higher standard than a man who has potential influence on the next government, literally the next government of the day. A, a man, you know, Tony Blair, has such influence on that government potential governments and it, this is not really being interrogated at all you know we, we speak about it here but more broadly this will be kind of left you know it will be on a few back pages for a couple of days or front page for a couple of days and you know before you know it it's, it's, it's forgotten so i do think we really need to think about you know how the west is, is, is in some ways has cozied up with, with saudi arabia without interrogating you know the saudi political regime and your know, figures like tony blair are kind of endemic of that trend yeah, I think that's so well put, particularly on the Jordan Henderson point, Mike. I mean, it's something we've said previously, but it's crazy. It is crazy that, you know, we sell arms to a, com a country as the UK, which is engaged in a horrific war targeting civilian populations in Yemen. Uh, you have a former prime minister who's just fettered across the media. No problems. And yes, okay, this is in the Sunday Times, but like you say, in the, uh, in the kind of media sources that everyday people access... The, you know, the talk shows, you know, BBC, Newslight, maybe Question Time, um, Radio 4 Today program, barely a peep, barely a peep. And what does it say? I'll, I'll finish with this. What does it say about this country's political establishment and particularly its centrist political establishment that they cared more about how Jeremy Corbyn pronounced the name of the world's most famous paedophile, Jeffrey Epstein? They cared more about that, how he pronounced the name... They cared more about that than Tony Blair and the Blair Institute continuing to do business with the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia after they chopped up a journalist, and not just any old journalist, a journalist who works at the Washington Post, a very prestigious journalist. They care more about mispronouncing Jeffrey Epstein. Epstein. My God, where are these people at? Next story. Stop eating avocados and you'll be able to afford a house. And that's what we've been told by the right-wing press over recent years. Yet the reality is a fair bit darker. And that's because instead of millennials and Gen Z spending excessively on exotic vegetables and coffees, young people are in fact forgoing some basic social activities. And by the way, that's not to save for a deposit. It's simply to pay the rent. This story is in the Telegraph. Generation rent cuts back on clubbing to afford rising bills. The article goes on to say this. A third of respondents to a survey said they do not go on as many nights out as they did this time last year. Of those, nearly half blamed increased general living costs, with almost as many pinning the problem on rising energy bills. One in three polled in nightclub operator Recom's Night Index said they felt a need to save any disposable income they may have previously had to spend partying, while increased rent was a major concern for a fifth of those aged between 25 and 34. Those in full-time work now go out more than students, the survey found, with students going out 1.8 times a week on average compared with 2.2 nights out for employees. 
The context fueling all of that is massive rent hikes. Spareroom.com provides an index of average rental prices for a single room in a shared house, and it doesn't look good. Their figures show that in every nation and region of the UK, rents, including bills, have increased by more than 10% in the past year. In Northern Ireland, average hikes have hit 20%. One in both Scotland and London, they're at a massive 19%. The average cost to rent a single room in London has hit £971. An extraordinary story. Just to recap, people are saying they don't have discretionary spending. They, they don't have enough to go out. Now, you might be thinking, good. You know, that's, that's that. you haven't got a right to go out and party, to, to eat at a restaurant, to drink a beer, to go meet your friends for coffee. But if you own a pub or a restaurant or a nightclub or a cafe, you should be worried because the demand that's good for your business has disappeared. Uh, Mike, on a more sort of morally probing uh, level, I suppose, are we robbing young Brits of their youth? I think we are when you think about the costs of, of private renting for young people and young people are more likely to, to, to rent. You know, we are because, you know, the rental market is not great. And there are two, there are kind of two issues of the rental market. A, the, the kind of price of rents for young people. I mean, that young people spend lots of their wages on rent in the first place. Um, and, you know, they haven't got kind of assets to fall back on like, you know, like some people. So that's a problem. But it's also the quality of housing available because rents have gone up so much. Young people are having to settle for low-quality housing. And we know that 2.6 million young people are living in poor-quality rented, rented houses. So that's a huge issue. So not only is there like an issue in terms of rent and the price of rent, but also the quality that we allow the young people to live in. Now, what's the big problem with that? The big problem with that is that that's obviously going to have take a toll on, on people in terms of their mental health, in terms of their physical health to some extent, when there's mould in, in, in homes and we know that that can actually kill people. So this is a really huge issue. And, and you know, people often blame on people as being irresponsible with their money and, you know, spending too much money on Netflix and spending too much money on shoes, whatever it might be. But, you know, for some people, especially with inflation, wages haven't, haven't risen. You know, inflation has risen. So, you know, kind of, real-time wages have actually dropped and, and people people essentially in this moment young people are suffering so yes we are young, young people of their youth we want young people ideally to you know be, be buying properties and, and be and be living their lives not being you know unable to socialize because they, they feel they haven't got the kind of the capital to do so so it is a real problem for this country and i think that the governments are often surprised that you know people you know, young people are disillusioned with politics and they're involved in these protest movements and they're, there's this real anger I sense amongst young people as someone who's kind of an academic lecturer who teaches politics, I kind of sense this anger amongst young people and it's partly because of the injustice they have to experience, you know, when it comes to, to debt state, they're started with after university, when it comes to so many issues, young people are just not having a good time. So there is this real anger, there is this real unhappiness and this real lack of trust in politicians in terms of having the backs of young people so it's a real huge problem i think and it's something that you know any future government should place right at the top of their agenda because young people are the future you know they're going to be voters for a long long time and we want the best for our young people as a, as a nation we should want a prosperous prosperous future for our young people so i think you know if we are going to have a labor government in in, in a year's time or so uh, which looks very very likely you know, addressing the, the issue when it comes to housing and security for young people, that should be right at the top of their agenda. Well said. I mean, I've got a few points here. I, I'm not going to ask for the graphics to come back, but again, I really want to impress the data. I didn't want to get it wrong, so I didn't say it again. One in three polled said they felt the need to save any disposable income. One in three. One, think about that for a second. 
You're not buying books, you're not buying clothes, you're not going out. One in three people are saving any disposable income because of the cost of living crisis. And this was the killer stat for me. Those in full-time work now go out more than students. Students go out 1.8 times a week, and that's of course an average. Some will go out three times a week, some won't go out for, for months on end, compared with 2.2 nights out to four employees. So we've got this sort of cultural meme, haven't we? Um, this cultural memory, justified by the way, of young people, students, partying more than anyone else. But actually that's shifting. They're going out less now than people who are older than them, who are, who are meant to have you know, quote-unquote responsibilities. Of course, they should be going out too, but something has shifted for the, for the very youngest people. And I have to say, Mike, just to, just to build on what you said, I'm a bit older, right? I'm in my late 30s. And if you're watching this and you think you get a bum deal and you're in your late 20s, early 30s, you're right. You're right. And even if there's teachers or relatives or your parents or whatever... And they're saying, oh, no, it was worse in my day. No, no, you've got it great. You haven't. I'm telling you, 20 years ago when I was 19, things were a lot better to be young. There was a lot more disposable income. Things were a lot cheap. Housing was a lot more affordable. Everything was a lot easier to do. Um, and that's besides all the other challenges out there in regards to mental health, anxiety, you know, digital technologies and whatnot. Just on the very basics, the access to money and what you could get with it when I was in my early 20s, was a world away from where it's now. And the only way that's going to change is through politics and political action. So, you know, I don't want people to feel sorry for themselves. Well, they'll do that, but just don't, you know, just don't just do that. But at the same time, if you feel you've been hard done by, you absolutely have been. Okay? You've been absolutely screwed by a political establishment that generally only cares about people who are over 45 and who own their own homes. Right? And of course, that, that, that cohort is shrinking because people can't get on the property ladder. But for now, it's the, it's, the, it's the political bellwether for both major parties, which you could say, well, that's fine. They have to win democratic elections. Okay, but the, you know, the cost of that means they're ignoring a massive and growing chunk of the population. Democracies aren't meant to function like that. Before we go to our next story, uh, you're watching Navarro Live. My name is Aaron Bastani. If you like what you're watching, I'm covering in for, for, for Michael Walker today. A little bit last minute, uh, but even then, I think we're doing a good crack-up job here with Mike and Fox and Alex and Stephen behind the scenes. Support our work. Go to navaramedia.com forward slash support to make a one-off payment or make a rolling donation, become a supporter, as little or as much as you would like to give. I think it's important to say this. Navarra Media is really shifting the political agenda in this country. Last month on Instagram, for what it's worth, we had 13 million people engaging with our content. I think we're at uh, our most views ever this month in August. They call it silly season. Well, not so silly for us here at Navarra Media. We're bigger and better than ever, and that's because of the immense generosity of our supporters. If you want to join those guys, go to navarramedia.com slash support. And next story. Usually when we talk about migration, we focus on government policy and rhetoric and the effect it has on asylum seekers. But we don't often talk about the effect it has on the British public. Successive governments, Tory and Labour, have fired up anti-migration sentiment as a way to win votes. And, predictably, that has widened what people find acceptable to think and say in public. This is Patricia, who called into Radio 5 Live on Friday to make this proposal about the small boat crossings. Patricia, you think we should be hardline on this. Tell us more. Uh, you want my opinion? I do. That's what it's all about. <laughs> right. Um, I, I think 
and it's very tough and I'm sorry there will be some death I truly am sorry about that but we should not let them land sorry what did you say we should not let the boats land no the, the bit before you um, I'm, I'm truly sorry that we, there will be some deaths because when, when the boats turn back um, there will be some deaths and that's really really a, a bad thing but if we, they will then stop coming What do you say to that? What do you say to that? People are dying. People are still coming. Uh, same woman, I presume, she says, Britain's a Christian country. Oh, well, if they die, they die. You can't have them both, love. Uh, just a day later, six people drowned in the channel trying to make the crossing. And following that tragedy, Tricia Goddard read out this message on Talk TV. We've got messages. Um, there's lots and lots of things here. Uh, migrants. Um, uh, Ukraine is a developed first world European democracy where most people live in exactly the same we do, are highly educated, have virtually the same culture and values and who will want to return home as soon as their war is over. Afghanistan is a third world country whose culture has no similarity to ours, where they throw gay people off a roof. Maybe those people who are trying to escape were gay people um, and whose people are highly and whose people are highly uneducated, so can do little to our nation's prosperity. Why would you need to ask the question why we could assimilate 150k Ukrainians with ease unless you want the answer to be race orientated? Chris, wow, there's a lot of assumptions there. A lot of the Afghani people who um, wanted to come out were people who were dual language. They were professors. They were doctors who'd worked with the British. In fact, a high, high number of them were professional art, professional people. It's important to say that Trisha Goddard is absolutely correct in that regard, by the way. We just know this, that statistically people that engage in the kind of migration that we're seeing from Afghanistan, they, they, they tend to be the quote-unquote most privileged people from their communities. Uh, the most highly qualified, access to capital, uh, able-bodied, etc. So she was left pretty speechless by that message, but she threw it over to refugee specialist Luke Calvi, who gave this humane rebuttal to what was said. That's really affected me. It was difficult to hear you read that, if I'm honest, Tricia, but it, it, I would like the opportunity to, to respond to Chris directly, if that would be okay. Yeah, please do. Um, First of all, I would say that uh, in 2022, 8,600 people from Afghanistan crossed on small boats. And in the same time period, the British government offered safety to 22 people from Afghanistan under pathway two of ACRS. 22 people got that safe route in a whole year. Now, going back to what Chris said, the bottom line is the people from Afghanistan supported this government in Afghanistan. They fought for 20 years, 20 years, 20 years. They fought with our armed forces. They worked for peace. They worked for the right to educate girls, to educate their daughters so that their daughters could go to school, their daughters could go to college. And I was in that airport during Operation Pitting, welcoming the Afghans that managed to crush through the airport in Kabul. They were charging past Taliban fighters, desperately trying to get safety. 
because they knew the fate that befell them once the Taliban took over. I was in that airport and I listened to those stories. I listened to the people that we managed to get out and the stories of the people that they had to leave behind because the evacuation was so chaotic. I met fathers, mothers that had been separated from their children in the evacuation. I met children that had been separated from their parents. To suggest that those people somehow don't deserve our help because they're less than us, they're less than Ukrainians, it's frankly offensive. It's a disgusting way to feel and think. And Chris needs to have a word with himself because clearly Chris's attitude towards refugees and asylum seekers are motivated by racism. Absolutely spot on. Of course, it's about racism. Oh, it's a high GDP country. Ukraine is a, is a moderately poor country. Uh, there are there are very pe- wealthy people from parts of the global south who, who can't get here, principally because of the colour of their skin. The idea that it's about education and wealth and all these things is complete nonsense. It's, it's, it's about their race. Let's let's be real. They're white Europeans. On the Afghanistan thing as well, I just find this so remarkable. Somebody's half Iranian. The British government right now has sanctions on Afghanistan and Iran. Now, you might think those are legitimate. You might say, well, that's a very good tool. I don't, by the way. That's a very good tool to change regime. There's very little evidence of that, but fine. But if you're going to do that, if you're going to economically strangle a country, you have to also accept that some people will try and leave that country and seek a better life. And so you have people like the two disgusting human beings, frankly. We just talked about one who wrote something down and and the other person who called in Radio 5 Live. They would say, well, we can't take everybody. Okay, well, let's start at the beginning. Let's stop invading these countries. Let's stop imposing sanctions on these countries. And if you say, well, the Taliban, well, we tried to get rid of the Taliban. The CIA supported the rise of the Taliban in the early 1990s. So many failures of foreign policy. And we still use things like sanctions, which don't work. Mike, what do you make of this? I mean, look, I think it's very hard for most people in this country to really understand the relationship between foreign policy and the fact that many people are are trying to come here. Now, I understand there are people coming from countries which have nothing to do with foreign policy. But if you look at the leading sources of, of people entering Europe from overseas or sort of undocumented migrants, principally Syrians, Afghans, Iraqis, Iranians. But it feels so hard for so many people just to put two and two together. Why is that? I think there's this like lack of understanding about Britain's role in creating these crises and, and Britain's role globally in terms of you know, invading nations, bombing nations, as you mentioned earlier, and in some ways creating the conditions for these crises that later exist. Those links aren't that well drawn out in, 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 in our media, in our, in our discourse. So what often happens is we see the, the migrant crisis and the focus is on the migrant crisis. Well, it's not on the three or four years where Britain were involved in in a particular country that led up to the migrant crisis that, that we now experience. So I think it's just drawn those links in our popular discourse in, in the media. Those links aren't, aren't drawn out that well. And I think a lot of this, a lot of our discussion about immigration in this country is so inherently racialized. Let's be absolutely clear about this. It's a particular type of migrant that's not welcomed here. You know, these people are seen as incompatible with Britain. They're, they're framed as the security threats. A lot of this is, is a legacy of the post 9-11 war on terror that was pursued by, by Blair, by Bush, where, you know, people of a particular complexion, people from particular parts of the world are viewed as, as you know, these are terrorists, these are people who are going to be a threat to our nation, these are people who are incompatible, they come to this country and just live in these, in their own areas, they don't, in, they don't mix. You know, all of these things, all of these myths that people buy into are really, really dangerous. And I think, again, we should be accommodating to those in need, especially when we have literally created the conditions 
border migrant crisis to some extent. You know, we should be, you know, compassionate and, and show empathy to these people. And I think, you know, the reason why I'm so, I guess, frustrated with Labour who don't push back on on this, you know, just kind of rhetoric that Conservatives put out, this kind of hostile rhetoric that Conservatives put out on asylum is because that's why you have calls like the lady that we heard about. And, you know, almost it's like, they just kind of like, this glee at their suffering, it's just, it's really malicious, it's really, really nasty. So I think there does need to be a concerted effort by the, the Labour Party to kind of push back on, on rhetoric. Now, Labour, look, their history of immigration is far more complex than people realise. I and mean, people seem to think the Conservatives, you know, Unit Powell and, and that legacy, they're the only bad guys when it comes to immigration, hostile environments, as we, as we all remember, the Windrush scandal, all of these things. But Labour's history when it comes to migration actually is pretty sketchy to put it mildly you know i remember david blunkett in the, in the mid naughty speaking about asylum seekers swamping schools and you know refugees should go back and build their own countries so let's be clear labor historically have been a party that have you know espoused quite clearly and quite quite explicitly anti-asylum rhetoric so i think you know what we need to happen moving forward is in the Labour Party to adopt more progressive stances, but also, you know, I think, you know, moving beyond kind of electoral politics as the only venue for change, I think we, you know, on the left, you know, we can present a more progressive, you know, nation vision of, of Britain, you know, one that doesn't exclude people based on, you know, where they come from, and, and one that's compassionate and loving, one that understands that we have a duty as a nation to help those in suffering, and actually, that can be part of our identity as a nation, rather than, you know, nostalgia for empire, rather than this kind of like hostile version of Britain. The Britain that we want to believe in is a Britain that treats everyone, doesn't use words like asylum or refugees. We, these are human beings at the end of the day. These are people that deserve our respect, deserve our love, and deserve to be treated like human beings, not held on barges, not, you know, we don't laugh at their death, we don't exploit their death. You know, we treat these people with respect and we try and, you know, provide them with safe routes to enter this country and live a decent life. Mike, quickly, you know, you're you're black. I'm I'm half Iranian, so we're like we're not like white Brits. We're both Bame. Do you, do you think that this narrative, this discourse, do you think it's bleeding in now to how people look at you and me? Because I, I do really feel a rising animosity increasingly to not white people. And I have to say, look, a lot of this is on Twitter, right? Which is it's never a good barometer for anything. Uh, but since Elon Musk has bought it, you've obviously seen, uh, you know, the, the, the floodgates have opened with regards to all kinds of stuff, white nationalism, etc. And I see the sorts of comments and things being said in regards to people who are raised here, who've been born here, but who aren't white British, which frankly, you know, obviously I didn't expect it to disappear, but I didn't think I'd see the scale and intensity of it so publicly in the 2020s, frankly. Do you think something's changing with regards to our, our national conversation around race and identity as well, for the worse? And, and do you think that has any relationship to what's going on with the, the quote-unquote small boats crisis? Potentially. I do think that Twitter Twitter is a hostile place, right? So I've, I remember when I was writing about race and, and, and I was writing some articles for the Independence, I think it was, and I received this really long email from a guy who essentially told me to go back home. And I think for, for us, as, as you know, ethnic minorities, Often when we complain about Britain, or we say, you know, there's an issue with Britain when it comes to racism, or there's an issue with Britain when it comes to how they treat a particular group of people, whether it's, you know, the issue of, issue of housing or homelessness, whatever it might be, you know, it's like go back home. You're essentially, your Britishness is seen as contingent, right? So you, just, you, you stay here, you keep quiet, you live a nice life, and, you know, you just, you just shut up about the problems that exist in this country. So I think what's, what's happened is 
some people have this kind of tear of Britishness where it's like, if you're, you know, white, you are, you know, pure British, you, you know, have, there's no doubts about your status in this country. If you're a person that, you know, an ethnic minority, maybe, you know, most people would view you as, as, an, as you know, someone who's British, but the moment you complain about Britain, the moment you voice any concerns about this nation and want to make it a better place, a more loving place, a more you know, compassionate place, the moment you do that, that's when you're like, whoa, you know, if you don't like it here, go back home. So I, I think this actually legacy, can, I think about post-Brexit really and how that emboldened some particular groups and we saw hate crimes against minorities rise in the immediate aftermath of the of the result being announced. So I actually think this is part of a, a wider trend. Maybe you can tr- you can try trace this back all the way back to some of the stuff New Labour said about asylum seekers and about migrants and about refugees and you know John Major's government and and, and and Thatcher. This has been a long an ongoing process with successive governments and you know right wing newspapers etc. You know spewing some really hostile stuff about migrants. You know, and you know that becoming more mainstream. We have Brexit, and we see the hate crimes after Brexit. And I think there is this sense among some people that, you know, even though you know I was born in this country, I was raised in this country, my Britishness isn't you know complete. It's not because because my because my my skin color. You know, that's that's obviously a, a huge issue. So, yeah, I think this is part of kind of a wider trend of you know anti-immigrant rhetoric that's kind of existed for a while and, and, and both both major parties have played a role in it. So, so yeah, it's a part of a wider trend, I think. Yeah, I think people like Saul Abravman and, and Priti Patel, I think they have no idea what they're playing with. As women of colour, I think they have no idea what they're doing and the consequences it's going to have for people who look and sound like them. Non-white people were born and raised in the UK. Mike, been a great show. Thanks for joining me this evening. Been a pleasure. Uh, great debut, I think, for both of us. Yeah, it wasn't a, it wasn't a it wasn't a bad debut for the B team. Uh, and thanks everyone for watching this evening. Come back tomorrow for another live stream from 6 p.m. Uh, for now, you've been watching Navara Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navara Media. Go to navaramedia.com/support.